This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. and welcome again to History Off the Page. In our last episode, we talked about the invention of absolutism, which was seen as a solution to this explosion of violence that happens in the middle of the 17th century. However, this was not the only solution that Europeans developed to combat all of this violence. At the same time, running along an almost parallel track, there's this group of social reformers who begin to develop a movement to reshape European society, rebuilding it around the idea of rationality and reason. Basically, they thought, if we could transform human beings into rational creatures, then basically they'll stop doing all of those things that contribute so much to the idea of violence. Maybe if we all become rational, then we can finally reach social harmony. What a concept, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Now, to get us in the mood for thinking about this type of revolutionary change, I played a very famous song called the Night Queen's Aria from the opera The Magic Flute, written by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in 1791. And of course, everyone always forgets the libretto or the text was written by a guy named Emanuel Johann Schikaneder. The opera was revolutionary for a number of reasons. Uh, In many ways, it actually marks the start of romantic music. But it interests us here because it is the perfect embodiment of the way Enlightenment thinkers saw their project and how they wanted the society of the future to look. The opera starts out with this kind of familiar historical theme. Boy falls in love with girl, who he's of course never met. And the girl has actually been abducted by a bad person. Right, So this sounds like the start of a Disney movie where the young hero is going to go out and rescue the girl that he loves that he's never seen before. Now in this case, the young hero's name is Tamino. And he's a prince. And of course, he's out there looking for love. The girl is Pamina, and she is the daughter of the queen of the night who has been abducted by this evil sorcerer type guy named Sarastro. So the opera starts off with Tamino basically encountering the queen of the night who says, well, if you can go out and rescue my daughter, then you can have her hand in marriage. And here's a painting of her so you know you love her because, of course, you just love people at first sight. So far, so good. This is a typical epic-type story that, again, it sounds like something Disney would put together. But there's a twist. Sarastro is actually not an evil guy, but he is an enlightened, rational figure. If you want to use sort of Lord of the Rings analogies here, Sarastro is not Sauron. 
He's not Sauruman, these kind of evil wizards who are trying to you know, get power everywhere. But he's more like Gandalf. He's that kind of wise old man who's looking out at society thinking, how can I make it better? He hasn't captured Pamina to exploit her or to repress her. He's basically kind of taking over as a sort of surrogate father-in-law. He's trying to teach her rationality and reason and raise her up to be not just a princess, but to be a woman in the kind of modern enlightened sense. When he actually encounters Tamino, he doesn't say, wait a minute, I don't want a rival here. I don't want a potential suitor to come. He actually encourages the two of them to get married. But he says, Tamino, if you want to marry Pamina, you can't just marry her, not because of some agreement that she reached with her mother. That's the old way of doing things. That's the feudal way of doing things. We are enlightened thinkers, and we believe that we should achieve based upon merit, or we should receive compensation based upon merit. You get things in life because you have earned them. So Sarastro puts Tamino through these trials. He has to go through these ordeals. Uh, Not incoincidentally, these are all set in a pyramid. We'll talk about pyramids in just a second and why Enlightenment thinkers just love pyramids. But he has to go through these trials, and in the end, he succeeds in winning her hand. Now, there's another twist to the story, which is that the Queen of the Night is not just some distressed mother whose daughter was abducted and now she's desperately trying to to get her back. And we think about a mother's love that seems like something that's very natural and normal that we would support and be sympathetic to. But actually, the Queen of the Night is full of rage. The Queen of the Night was supposed to take over the temple that Sarastra runs, but instead, Sarastro got the job, and so she gives in to emotion. She gives in to rage, and she spends her time plotting revenge. Now, her first revenge is to have Tamino kill Sarastro, but later on, she also collaborates with one of Sarastro's minions, again, to try to have him taken out. Now, the Queen of the Night's name is also not accidental. Think about nighttime and what we associate with it. Nighttime is a time when we can't see, right? Our most powerful sense as human beings is probably sight. That's the thing that makes us sort of powerful as animals. You can see in 3D, whereas a lot of animals cannot. And that comes from sort of evolutionary reasons, right? If you think about monkeys, chimpanzees, things swinging through the jungle, as you're swinging from branch to branch, you have to be able to grab the next branch. If you screw that up, you're going to fall off the tree and things aren't going to work out so well. So human senses love daytime, we love sight. Nighttime is a time of fear. Think back to when you were a little child. When you were a boy or a girl, especially when you're a toddler, how do you think about the night? Isn't the night terrifying? Don't you want a nightlight so that you have light, so that you can see? You're worried if it gets dark out, it's when all the monsters come. Nighttime is a time of fear and anxiety, and especially irrationality. Nighttime is a time when our senses don't work, and we give in to superstition. We worry about ghosts and goblins and things crawling under our bed and spiders. There is going on in the Enlightenment a metaphor, a linguistic metaphor. The Enlightenment is bringing awareness, is bringing knowledge, is making things clear and rational, just like when you turn on the light, all of a sudden you can see everything. 
The opposite of this is darkness. Darkness is when you cannot see, is when you do not know, is when there is no certainty. And so the magic flute is really kind of playing out this story of an enlightened revolution. Tamino becomes not just the hero, the guy who wins the girl, but he becomes the guy who wins the girl because he is enlightened. He is a model for what young men should want to be, according to someone like Mozart and Schikaneder. We could call the magic flute a piece of propaganda. Now, we probably don't like that idea because most people have a very positive view of the Enlightenment these days and a very negative view, obviously, of propaganda. But that's what it is, right? It's holding up this image of what the Enlightenment is supposed to be. But what actually is Enlightenment? What role did it play in laying the grounds for the French Revolution? Why did some people dislike the Enlightenment? Why were they afraid of it? Did the Enlightenment actually live up to these values and projections? One of the big values of the Enlightenment, of course, is the idea of self-emancipation, equality, freedom, liberty. It's one thing to say that we want these things in practice, but how does that translate then to actual daily life? Someone like Thomas Jefferson can say, I'm all for self-emancipation. I'm all for liberty. But what happens if he has slaves? How does that complicate the story? How does the Enlightenment relate to something like Freemasonry? And why is there a pyramid on the back of the American dollar bill? These are some of the things that we're going to talk about in today's episode as we try to unpack this idea of what is the Enlightenment and how was it experienced. Okay, in its most immediate sense, the basic idea of the Enlightenment is to carry over these principles that are developed during the scientific revolution and apply them to society. You can find out more about the scientific revolution if you go to our Patreon page. Uh, These are one of the special episodes that are reserved for our supporters, and we greatly appreciate your support. But the cliff note version is that part of what's going on during the scientific revolution is that people begin to adopt a, a system for creating knowledge that's based on observation. If I want to know what's going on in the world, I basically just look at what's going on. I take notes. I make evidence. And then I come up with some sort of rational explanation to explain why that is. I don't start from a philosophical position where I just say, oh, okay, I think that this is probably how the body works. I think that this is probably how the stars move. You start by measuring first and then drawing conclusions. And to anyone who's taken a science class in their life, right, this is not a very surprising thing. This is what science is. It's observations, theories, And then there's a little bit of repeatability thrown into that. So the Enlightenment is basically this idea of taking these principles developed during the scientific revolution and let's apply them to European society. Let's study laws. Let's study population trends. Let's study economics. And let's see if we can't uncover some of these hidden laws. If we can discover something like gravity and begin to make it work for our benefit, why can't we discover social laws that can help lead us towards social harmony? So the basic core idea of enlightenment, again, is this metaphoric representation of spreading knowledge. The enlightenment thinkers have an interesting relationship with the Bible and especially with the Catholic Church, but they love this metaphor of enlightenment, which is taken from the Bible. So they see their task as destroying shadows and rumor which harbor superstition, and almost, you know, many religions talk about having uh, an eternal light, 
right? Or, or have some kind of light or candles that are involved, right? The idea of light is very bound up in religious ritual. And for the Enlightenment thinkers, they also, again, see what they're doing as metaphorically bringing light to the world. We can see evidence of this idea of using science to reshape society on something like the American dollar bill. I don't know how much time you've actually spent looking at a dollar bill, but if you have one in your pocket, just take it out, open it up, look on the back. There's a pyramid on there. Did you ever stop to think about why is there a pyramid on the back of the dollar bill? Coins, money, bills, right? Think about the other things that are on those are all very tied up to American nationhood. You have presidents, you have famous buildings, a couple famous people like Alexander Hamilton, and then in a couple years they're going to put Harriet Tubman on the, uh, I believe it's the $20 bill now. But money is a very national space, right? It is one way that we create symbols that kind of tie everyone in the national community together. So why would you put a pyramid on an American dollar bill? There's no pyramids here. They're in Egypt. Or at least there weren't pyramids, right? There is a place in Memphis called the Pyramid, or they used to play basketball. There's the Luxor in, uh, in Vegas now. So we do have some pyramids, but not like on the dollar bill. So why is it there? The answer is, it is there because pyramids were a symbol of the Enlightenment. And many of the founding figures involved in the construction of the United States were followers of the Enlightenment. Men like Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Madison, they all saw what they were doing in the building of the country as an Enlightenment project. Let's get rid of monarchy and we will replace it with ideals based on reason and rationality. So what does pyramids have to do with this? Think about a pyramid. Think about what goes into building a pyramid. You don't just go out in your backyard and say, okay, I picked up some cinder blocks from Lowe's or Home Depot. And I'm just, I'm going to build a pyramid, right? Isn't that great? Pyramids are heavily involved in mathematics. Pyramids, if built properly, have to be level. They have to be straight. They have to have parallel lines that extend over large distances. The angles matter in pyramids. Once you begin to build the pyramid, it is incredibly strong. The pyramids in Egypt have been there literally for thousands of years. They have endured sandstorms, earthquakes, sun, wind. There's not a lot of rain in that area of the world, but every now and then there's a little bit. Pollution, people, wars. Pyramids are super strong. And they're strong because of how well they're balanced mathematically. Right? So they're intentional, they're mathematic, they're measured, they're rational. So the actual pyramid on the dollar bill wasn't put there until 1935. But the design comes basically from the Great Seal of the United States, which was invented by the founders of the country. So pyramids are a symbol of the Enlightenment. One of the groups that is frequently associated with those founders of the country are the Freemasons. You've ever seen uh, Nicolas Cage movies, National Treasure, National Treasure 2? Right? The idea is that they're searching after these Freemasons and they, they have this treasure. And of course, there's the Illuminati and all these rumors and there's still Masonic lodges today. You might be driving around and you'll see there's a G and then usually like a little uh, compass. You might say, well, that's an interesting symbol for an order. Are they a bunch of architects? Are they a bunch of design people? Are they engineers? And the answer is not necessarily. But the origins of those groups lie in the idea of building a more perfect society based on rationality and reason. 
They have that compass symbol because they are literally measuring and designing society. They are called the Masons because Masons built stuff. When you build a building, you don't just build it and stick, okay, here's some rocks and here's some, some cinder blocks and things like that, at least not in the modern conception. Building involves measuring, thinking, rationalizing. So the Enlightenment is a building project. It is a construction project. It is about unlocking the rational side of the human brain and letting it design somewhat from above society so that we eliminate these sources of violence. We figure out what is a rational way to create a system for dissent so that when I'm upset, I don't just go burn down the local noble's house. It's about thinking what are some laws that we can have or traditions that we can have so that if one person is Protestant and the other person is Catholic, they don't need to try to kill each other. They're not trying to burn each other's houses down. It's about unlocking the individual and allowing them a sense of freedom and mobility and agency so that instead of being unhappy and rebelling or suffering, they can pursue their own interests. That idea that everyone has the right, not just to things like liberty or even life, but the pursuit of happiness, that this is somehow important to creating social harmony. This is a value that comes from the Enlightenment. Now, usually when we talk about Enlightenment figures, we tend to think about it as being a kind of stuffy affair, right? Here's Washington, here's Jefferson, here's Franklin. They're sitting around at their mansions talking about philosophy and wearing their wigs and they've got their ruffles on and everything like that. But the Enlightenment is a revolutionary project. It is not just revolutionary in, in the sense that, okay, we're going to do something new, but it is an anti-authoritarian project. And when I say anti-authoritarianism, I don't mean in the modern sense where you say, okay, we don't like dictatorship. I mean, they don't like existing traditional authorities. They want to overturn existing society. They want to create something radically different. And there's a really easy way that we can see this by looking at the notion of time. We live, as I mentioned in our very first episode, in a world of progress. We live in a world where we expect change to be constant, where when we think about the future, it's not just more of the same, but it's radically different, right? We're going to have flying cars and hoverboards. We're going to be able to communicate with each other through our watches, or maybe we'll have chips implanted in our brains. But the future is going to look very different than the present. That idea of constant progress originates with the Enlightenment, that idea of time, of conceiving of the flow of time, of the trajectory of time. If we go back to the Middle Ages, the predominant notion of time was linear. Basically, if you think about time as being a line, the beginning of that line is the story of creation. God creates the earth, does it in six days, rests on the seventh day, that becomes the Sabbath. For most Europeans, that's Christian time we're talking about, so there's kind of like a midpoint when Jesus comes and dies and is resurrected. And then the Middle Ages is basically sitting around and waiting for the second coming and the start of the end of days. So God has a plan. We're here in this kind of purgatory moment, and we're waiting for the big moment when the end of times begins. This notion of time starts to get reworked during the Renaissance, when Renaissance thinkers like Petrarch start looking at time and looking at history and saying, wow, you know, actually during the Roman Empire, things were a lot better than they are today. During the Roman Empire, or even the Roman Republic, 
We were all flourishing. Italy was a powerful place. And look at it now during the Middle Ages. Things have kind of gone to hell. In the Middle Ages, we have all, all of these French invasions, German invasions. Italy doesn't really get to decide its own fate. Things are actually worse off now than they once were. But people like Petrarch begin to say, what if we could go back? What if we could restore the glory of the Roman period or even the kind of Republican period of the Roman Empire or before the Roman Empire? And so there begins to be this idea of reconstruction, of rebirth. Renaissance is French for rebirth. So we start thinking about where we are now and saying, you know what, things could actually be better. But the idea here is to get back to where we once were, not to kind of advance farther than we've already been. The Enlightenment will build off of this moment and say, look, we now can exceed what was done before. We don't have to say Aristotle, Galen, these are the limits of human knowledge, right? We'll never know more than the ancient Greeks knew. Enlightenment thinkers begin to say, apply reason and logic to society and let's find out where that can take us. Maybe we can learn even more than they once knew. And we know this because we've seen this happen during the scientific revolution. So the Enlightenment is all about overthrowing what had existed before, overthrowing these existing authorities, and creating something radically new. Now, at the heart of this revolutionary program is the idea of the individual. We talked in our first episode about how this was a corporate society, how people thought about themselves primarily not as individuals, but in terms of group identities. I'm born into a certain group religiously, geographically, professionally, and I need to stay in that group. I'm, I'm never going to try to leave that group because I don't even think about myself and my own wants as being a priority. The Enlightenment begins to say, actually, the individual should be at the heart of society. What we want is to emancipate the individual. We want to break the chains of superstition and a lack of reason that holds them down and keeps them in a certain place. There's a famous uh, Enlightenment philosopher named Immanuel Kant that we will discuss in a future episode. But he defined enlightenment as, quote, referring to man's departure from his self-imposed tutelage. Tutelage means the inability to make use of one's own reason without the guidance of another. This tutelage is self-imposed if its cause lies not in intellectual insufficiency, but in a lack of will and courage. Dare to know. Have the courage to use your own reason. This is the motto of the Enlightenment. To put this another way, what Kant is basically saying is that we want to transform people into people that are completely self-sufficient. We want to create a sort of self-winding clock where even though you've got an old watch, you might have to wind that watch, right? The machine slows down over the course of time. It's not that the machine slows down that's a big problem. It's that we want the machine to be able to wind itself. We want people to be able to think for themselves. We don't want them just to receive information from the church or from their Lord or from their guild and say, this is what you're supposed to know. And you say, okay, I get it. I'm going to do whatever I've been told. This is radical. You as an individual should be able to go out and find and learn and rationalize on your own. You should be able to distinguish between what is superstition and what is reality. 
As I'm recording this in November of 2021, I'm reading my seven-year-old son this story of Greek myths. And the story isn't just about here's Zeus and here's Apollo and, and the big gods, but there's even little ones, right? They're even talking about things like, okay, here's Eos, the goddess of the dawn, and then here's Helios, and he's the sun chariot, and he's the one that's actually driving the chariot. But what happens when, you know, one time he let his son drive the chariot and his son wasn't a god, so things went wrong. And this explains movements of celestial bodies. The Enlightenment thinkers want you to be able to hear that and go, there's no god driving a chariot around with fire. There's not cows with 100 eyes. It, it's not windy because there's four gods that are the winds and they're kept in a cave and Sometimes another god lets them out of the cave, and sometimes he puts them back in the cave. Enlightenment thinkers want you to look at that and go, that doesn't make any sense. There's no rational basis. There's no evidentiary basis for believing that that's how the world works. So emancipate the individual. However, there's a problem with this, and enlightenment thinkers were very aware of it. Human beings rely on their senses to be able to manipulate the world, to understand the world, to perceive the world. But human senses are flawed. Have you ever been driving down the highway and it's a really hot day and, and the road is kind of curvy or hilly and you look out there and all of a sudden there's like this black patch of something that covers the road. Then as you get closer and closer, it dissipates. That black patch of stuff isn't really there. But it just looks that way. So why is that? I actually don't know the answer, to be honest with you. But what I can tell you is that it's not there, right? My sight deceives me. Have you ever looked at a painting in a room and it's one of those creepy paintings where it looks like the painting is looking at you and you walk across the room and its eyes follow you as you walk across the room and your brain says, oh my God, that thing is looking at me. It's following me. It must be some kind of spooky mansion or spooky, you know, ghost or something like that. But you know that's not true because you have reason and that reason can overcome that irrational fear. I'm sure most of you have also seen these kind of drawings sometimes people do in cartoons where there's multiple ways to look at it. If you're interested in an example of what I'm talking about, go ahead and Google my wife and my mother-in-law. This is from a magazine called Puck from November 1915. It's a cartoon by a guy named William Ellie Hill. And it's kind of a joke, right? So you can find your wife and your mother-in-law in the same picture, even though it's, it's, the picture itself isn't changing. Ha 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 ha. So human senses are flawed. How are we going to overcome this? How are we going to deal with this? Well, Enlightenment thinkers figured out a way to overcome it, and that is through social conversation. That basically, we as human beings may have flawed individual perceptions. We may be irrational. But when we get together, when we talk things through, we often come to the right conclusion. You want a kind of farcical example of this? Uh, I play fantasy sports. I'm a Chicago Bears fan. I may say, okay, I love the Bears. I love the Bears' new quarterback. I'm going to draft that guy first overall because I love the Bears, and I think they're going to be great this season. I'm not making that decision because it's based in rationality. I'm not evaluating the evidence and thinking about trends and things like that. I'm doing it because I'm being a homer. Right? I'm, I'm giving in to my emotions. Now, if I got together with a group of students and I said, hey, you guys, you know a lot about football. Here's my idea. I'm going to draft the Bears quarterback number one overall. The students would kind of laugh at me and say, Dr. Hansen, that's ridiculous. What are you thinking? Of course, that's a bad idea. Let me give you reasons why that's a terrible idea. So we overcome our irrationalities and our limitations in our senses 
by having social conversations. I'll give you another example of this that is drawn from present-day society. This is the idea uh, from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? If you guys ever watched that show, basically it was a series of questions that you got asked, multiple choice, and increasingly over time they got harder and harder, and each time you answered one correctly, you won a larger and larger prize until when you get to the last one, you win a million dollars. Which back when it first premiered in the early 2000s, that was that was a big deal. Now I guess, you know, it'd be nice to win a million dollars. Some of you probably are like, that's not that much money. But anyways, the game show had these three lifelines that you could pick. And one was phone a friend. One was 50-50, so they would remove two of the wrong answers and you had a 50-50 chance of getting it right. And then the last one was to ask the audience. Now, most of us, when we think about this, would say, well, the most accurate way to do it is to phone a friend, right? Get on the phone, call your friend. You know, if you get a history question, you, you've got Dr. Hansen listed as a friend, just call me. I know everything, right? It's actually not the most efficient answer. You might think it's 50-50. Just give me a 50-50 chance. I mean, I've got a coin flip chance of getting it right. That's pretty good. But the number one lifeline is actually to call the audience or to, to poll the audience. People who know the answer will say the answer or put the answer in. People who don't know won't vote. And the people who are wrong will be so small that almost always the right answer comes out. So we overcome our limitations and our own rationality through having conversations. And so because of this, Enlightenment thinkers prize the notion of a free conversation. It is not just enough to emancipate yourself you then need to encounter and engage in dialogue with other people. The Enlightenment is a social phenomenon. Don't just sit in your room and study, think. Get out there and have conversations with others. One of the things we'll see that is a huge value in the Enlightenment is the notion of protecting conversation. Right? We don't want censorship because censorship inhibits our ability to rationally figure out what the right answer is. We don't want limitations on the press because if we limit the press, if we say, here are topics that you can't talk about, then we will prevent us arriving at the most rational answer. We want things like freedom of speech because if I'm not allowed to criticize the king, then how can we come up with the most efficient form of government? So one of the things that the Enlightenment does is not just saying, okay, here's politics, let's focus on laws and rules and agitations and things like that, but it also creates social structures to carry on these conversations. We might call these things knowledge networks, ways for people to interact with each other, to talk to each other, to arrive at solutions with each other. One of the early ways that this becomes manifest is through something called the salon. And salons were basically these big parties or social gatherings that were organized mainly by women, usually Upper class, we're talking uh, wealthier common women or even aristocrats. But they would have these big gatherings, right? You'd invite everybody over. You'd say, okay, be at my house, 3 p.m. We're going to have coffee. We're going to have some, some treats, some hors d'oeuvres. And uh, by the way, I invited this guy, Emmanuel Kant, to come and talk to us. I invited this guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I invited this botanist who's going to tell us the latest in knowledge about orange trees, and Venus flytraps and all these kind of things going on in the world. So it's kind of like a party, but there's a knowledge-based element to it as well. You, you invite Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart over to your house so you can talk to him. 
So you can talk about, okay, this, this opera that you just came up with, the magic flute, tell us about it. So these tend to be very cosmopolitan spaces. Another interesting thing about it is not just, okay, it's being hosted by someone who's wealthy, it's being hosted potentially by someone who's a noble, but you invite lots of guests over. And so maybe if you're a social riser, maybe if you're that young upstart young man and you know you want to marry better off than you are, you want to impress somebody, you want to get a, a job at a, at a certain firm or something like that, you go to the salon and you try to make people go, oh, who's that person? Well, this is also true of women. Women are very involved in salon culture. You go to the salon so that you can be noticed. Noticed not just like you were at Louis XIV's court, where they went, oh, who's that gorgeous woman walking by? But noticed for your intellect. You're having some discussion about poetry and, wow, Bernice is just, she's really brilliant. I'm really impressed with her knowledge, with her own voice. So salons are these kind of cosmopolitan spaces. You can invite people from different countries to be there, different classes, different professions. And you sit around and everyone tries to advance their knowledge. Not everybody has the money to set up a salon. Not everybody has the money to have, you know, wealthy parties, to be a kind of who's who in society. So there's another interesting place that my guess is most of you are very, very familiar with that is also tied in many ways to the Enlightenment, and that is the coffee house. Think about what the coffee house looks like. Think about your local coffee shop, especially pre-pandemic, when people could be there for a while, especially even think about it before Wi-Fi, when everybody's just, you know, locked into their computers now or listening to their music now. Coffee shops used to be a place where people talk to each other. Coffee shops were a great place to go because you went there and you drank your coffee and it woke you up. Coffee shops, especially near universities, are fantastic because how else are you going to get through that long, boring history text that someone gave you? How else are you going to slog through all that mathematics or that sciencey stuff? It helps to have some stimulants. Get a little donut, get some coffee, wake yourselves up. The coffee house has its origins in many ways, at least in Europe, in Western Europe, in the Enlightenment. It first comes from the Middle East, where then it makes its way up into Turkey and Venice. But in the mid-17th century, as we first start to see the initial origins of Enlightenment culture, the first kind of pushes for reason and rationality, coffee house becomes very popular in Europe. It kind of makes its initial explosion. One of the first places that it appears in England, for example, is in Oxford. There's a place called the Queen's Lane Coffee House. It's founded in 1654. And you can still visit this coffee house today. It's still, still there in Oxford. Now, that's not a coincidence. Why are they opening a coffee house in Oxford? Because Oxford is the center of the UK's premier academic institution. Some of you will say Cambridge is. That's okay. But in the 17th century, Oxford is the place for students to be. And they need that coffee to stay awake so that they can make it through all of their texts that they're reading, all of their knowledge that they're gaining. In the 17th century, coffee houses became a place to not just go to do your own research, but there was a social aspect to it. You go to the coffee house and you see someone like John Locke sitting there and you say, oh, okay. Let's sit down and talk about your recent treaty. You go to Paris and Thomas Jefferson is working there as the U.S. ambassador for a while. Hey, Thomas, TJ, what's up? 
I want to talk about the Declaration of Independence. I want to unpack some of these things that you talked about in there. So these become social spaces, not just for going and listening to iTunes, but to go and talk to people, to have exchanges, to say, you know what, I can't believe this. I think it's wrong. I agree with this. I think this is right. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's work it through. It's no coincidence that just 25 years after that original coffee house opens in Oxford, that there are more than 3,000 coffee houses throughout Europe. These are places for debate, for exchange, and for not just socialization, but the social project or side of the Enlightenment for having those exchanges and those conversations that are supposed to keep us focused on reason and rationality. There are quite a few examples of this. I mentioned Freemasons earlier in the, uh, in the show. The Freemasons are basically doing the same thing, right? Let's have this society, let's get together, and let's talk about how to design what a, a good, rational, effective, socially harmonious society might look like. There are other examples of this as well. We could talk about reading societies. We could talk about debating clubs. We could talk about these sort of philosophical or artistic associations that get set up, patriotic associations. But at the end of the day, they're all about the same thing. They're all about this idea of having a social conversation. The Enlightenment is about the individual and emancipating the individual, but that doesn't occur unless it's also part of this broader social project. Now, perhaps the best single example of this new emphasis on the public use of reason and knowledge can be seen in something called the Encyclopédie, or as we would translate it, the Encyclopedia. It's not the first encyclopedia that's ever published, but it becomes the forerunner, the pathbreaker, if you will, of what a modern encyclopedia would look like. It's created by this guy, Denis Diderot, in 1751, and it features articles by most of the major Enlightenment thinkers, people like Voltaire, Montesquieu, Rousseau, Buffon. There's a physiocrat named Quesnay. So they're going to start to pull in the greatest scientific minds of the age, at least the ones that are pro-Enlightenment. They're going to begin to create this modern encyclopedia. Now, most of you probably don't spend much time thinking about the importance of an encyclopedia, but we live in an age when we have so much information available to us because we have that kind of encyclopedic trend. If you want to know about something, if I mention someone in this podcast, you say, oh my God, who, who was Mozart? What is the, the story of the magic flute? Okay, so I got the basic outlines. It sounds interesting, but I want to know the blow by blow. I want to know more about why it was created, when it was created. Well, you have all of that information available at your fingertips. You just put it into Google, assuming you have the technological capability, right? You've got internet connection. You put it in there and you look it up instantaneously. You probably don't think about how important that is, but if you're a new parent, you will one day. One of the things that they don't tell you about having children is that children go through lots of, weird isn't the right word, but abnormal sort of parts of development. They, they do weird things. There's noises that you're, you're not expecting. And so if you have kids, especially small children, I guarantee that at least a dozen times in your life, you will be at a moment when you're like, oh my God, what's going on? Is this something serious? Or is this just, it's a, you know, they got a random rash, but it doesn't matter because it's just a random skin rash. Nothing to worry about. It's terrifying if you don't have a way of getting information to figure out how to deal with that issue. Now, you all don't have to worry about that because you say, oh, my son has these weird 
red spots on his skin. I wonder if that's something. Let me Google it and let me see pictures of various rashes. And they'll tell me, is this some kind of scarlet fever and I need to go to the hospital right away? Or is this just some random skin rash that doesn't mean anything? It's not anything to worry about. So knowledge, or put better, the access to knowledge is empowering. We feel better about ourselves and we feel more equipped to deal with reality because when we run into these sort of crises of knowledge, when we don't know what to do, I can go look that up online. Information, access to information emancipates me. And this is kind of what the idea of the encyclopedia was. If you are someone going to one of those salons, if you are someone that needs knowledge, before the encyclopedia, the number one source of knowledge is going to be the church. That knowledge might be from your local priest. You might say, okay, I got married. Okay, priest, let's talk about the birds and the bees. Or it might be some sort of institutional aspect of it. You might say, well, okay, how, how do I know about why eclipses happen? I'm worried about an eclipse. And so then you would go and find, you know, maybe your priest could say, well, here's a writing on eclipses from Aristotle. Here's how you know what you should know. That type of knowledge is dependent. And so Diderot and his co-sort of conspirators thought about making this book or series of books that could answer all the questions that people had. If you are some young upstart, you know, social rising, you know, ambitious young man, and, and you've been invited now to a salon and you really want to impress the people there, but you're 19 years old, you're 20 years old, and you don't want to be the guy or the girl at the party who's constantly raising their hands and saying, wait, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain it? We've all been in those situations, right? We go somewhere and everybody knows something about the conversation going on. And we're like, what the heck are they talking about? But we don't want to be the one always saying, wait, I don't know. Can, can you explain it to me? I'm, I'm a simpleton. I just, I'm, I'm ignorant. I don't know. No, we want to be the person that comes in and says, look, I know exactly what you're talking about. Here's what I think about it. I am also an expert in it. So knowledge, again, is power, or again, having access to knowledge. The encyclopedia is going to emancipate people who want to be social risers because they can get access to that information. I'm going to somebody's salon, and there's going to be a naturalist there. They're going to talk about animals in Africa. Well, guess what? I read an encyclopedia article about giraffes. When they start talking about these weird creatures with long necks, I'm not going to go, whoa, that's, that's trippy. What is that? I'm going to say, okay, I know what you're talking about. I, yeah, they're really interesting. They look kind of like horses with long necks. Because you've read the encyclopedia, which in the end, it takes them 20 years to kind of finish it. There's a point when it's actually banned by the monarchy, and we'll get into that in a second. But in the end, 20 years, 75,000 entries over 18,000 pages. That's pretty impressive if you think about it, no? But there are also some dangers with this, right? We talked in the beginning of the podcast about this idea of values versus experience, of saying, this is what we want the Enlightenment to look like, but then what does it actually look like in practice? There are two things that are worth mentioning here. One is just that this is not an apolitical project. This is not just Diderot and his conspirators saying, well, I just feel like putting all this knowledge in some place and I'll bequeath it to the world and won't everything be great after that. This is a political project. This is revolutionary. And so when you actually read these articles, they don't pretend to be, to use a kind of phrase from our time, fair and balanced. They try to advance enlightened ideals. When they talk about things like 
political authority. They don't just say, oh, well, there was once monarchy, and now there's absolutism, and here are some kings, and isn't it nice? They ridicule monarchy to some extent. They ridicule the old monarchy, where the idea is just basically, well, you know, as we said with the uh, Monty Python sketch from uh, the episode on the princes, the Lady of the Lake holds out Excalibur, and here's this divine ritual giving power to King Arthur. They kind of mock stories like that. They criticize feudal institutions like guilds, serfdom, and above all else, they are really, really critical of the Catholic Church. Not necessarily of religion or belief in God, but of the institution of the church, which they see as sort of this institution that breeds superstition that is kind of leading people astray. So this is not an apolitical act. It is, as I said, revolutionary in nature. A second part of this story is one that will be more familiar to contemporary users. When you have kids and you go to look up, okay, is this a disease or is this something that's just normal and natural? You will not just read it and go, oh, thank goodness, it's not something to worry about. You will actually read things that will make you even more anxious, even more nervous. So there's that danger of having too much knowledge out there. And one of the ways that we see this in particular in this context is that as criticism of the monarchy of existing institutions spreads, as the establishment gets seen as more and more uh, as part of the problem, it opens the door to more radical solutions. And so basically, one of the directions that we're going in here is that the Enlightenment is going to sort of set up this court of reason. It is going to try the monarchy during the French Revolution, and it is going to find it guilty of being irrational. So the Enlightenment and, and this awareness and knowledge is going to destroy the foundations of society. And the big question is how well it's going to replace that. Now, just to give you a sense of the popularity of the encyclopedia, it starts out as a somewhat niche project. It starts out as somewhat, you know, who has the money to afford all of these expensive volumes and books in the 1750s? But it rapidly spreads and becomes popular. And it's not just, well, so-and-so bought a book and now they've got that knowledge, but they can lend that book to others. And so the encyclopedia becomes popular, not just in France, but across Europe. Over 25,000 full copies of it were sold during the 18th century. In a city like Besançon, for example, only about 28,000 people live in that city, but they sell 137 copies, 15 to the clergy, 53 to the nobility, and 69 to doctors and lawyers. And so you can start to get a sense, too, of who are the players in this Enlightenment project? Who are the people that are most interested in these ideas, in this revolution. It's not the serfs and the peasants working out on the farms. It's not the people living in the villages. It is primarily what we would call today middle-class people, people that are literate, people that have a slight amount of disposable income, people living in cities that can participate in these social networks. And so when the French Revolution comes, they are going to be the ones driving the proverbial bus. All right. Now, having talked broadly about the Enlightenment, I want to just mention a couple figures that you should be aware of that are related to the Enlightenment. The first is a guy named Charles-Louis de Secondon Montesquieu, or more commonly just known by his last name, Montesquieu. Montesquieu is basically a prominent French noble. He comes out of an aristocratic background, becomes a lawyer, spends a lot of time in his local parliament, 
But he, despite his noble backgrounds, is very interested in enlightened ideals. He is very concerned with the question of how does society work? And so he wants to answer that question, not by sitting there and saying, well, I'm a philosopher and this is what I think and here's my ideas. He is more someone that is is coming out of the experience of the scientific revolution. He says, if I want to know what these unseen hidden laws are that make society work, I need to do research. And so he attempts to create this comprehensive description of all human morals and customs. And he puts this together in this large book in 1748 called The Spirit of the Laws. And the spirit of the laws is exactly what you would think. It basically says, here are my observations about trends that one can notice in society if one looks at the totality of it. This is a very enlightenment idea. If I want to know what's going on, gather all the evidence, collect it all, organize it all, rationalize it all, and then look for patterns that emerge. And so Montesquieu comes to some conclusions. He says, look, weather seems to impact countries and the form of government that they take. Geography impacts the way that governments form. If we look at countries in hot areas, countries that are very large, you really need a despotism. You need some kind of monarchy running them because the people are crazy because it's just too hot out. As heat makes people insane, right? That's Montesquieu's explanation for what's happened to Florida. That's a joke, of course. But Montesquieu draws these conclusions, right? If you have a small country, it's nice, it's cold out, people are sitting around contemplating, they're not given to the passions. So we could have a democracy in a place like the Dutch Republic or Venice or Switzerland. But if you go to the Middle East, you go to Spain, that's not going to work. Those people are, it's just too hot there. They're too crazy. They stay up too late. Montesquieu writes many things. Um, he actually becomes an inspiration in many ways to people like Thomas Jefferson and other founding members of the United States. He is a champion of the idea of personal freedom, which again was a very kind of enlightened ideal. And he's a sharp critic of social structures that inhibit such freedom. So it's not coincidental that his writings about monarchy, his writings about the need for checks and balances in government, become very popular among the sort of framers of the American Republic. Now, the second guy that's often talked about when we talk about the Enlightenment is a man named François-Marie Herouet, who you probably know better as Voltaire. Voltaire is kind of his pen name that he writes under. Voltaire is a, a literary critic. He's an author. He's a philosopher. He's a satirist, a humorist. And one of the things that he does is he kind of popularizes the ideals of the Enlightenment. He is a bit of a prima donna. He's kind of gifted with this sort of sharp wit or cursed with it, depending on your perspective. He goes from this kind of middle class background to actually at one point becoming the official royal historian of Louis XV of France in 1745. He winds up becoming Frederick the Great or Frederick II's one of his best friends. The two of them write over 700 letters with each other, which is a lot if you think about trying to write 700 letters. They talk about very personal and intimate details. They also talk about politics quite a bit. So he goes from being an ordinary guy to someone that everyone around Europe is fascinated by, is interested in. If he lived today, he would be a social media star, without question. He, again, has this very sharp wit. Some of his uh, greatest hits, for example... He describes the Holy Roman Empire as neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. 
which was true for reasons that we'll talk about another day. He also has this kind of very cynical uh, slant that would be very appropriate today. He says, it is dangerous to be right in matters on which the established authorities are wrong. Or, of course, he also notes, you know, common sense is not so common. You can get this kind of cynical, this kind of witty, this kind of acerbicness to him, but this makes him enormously popular, and he in turn uses his influence to popularize the Enlightenment. In 1759, he writes this book called Candide, the Optimist, which is basically the story of this young man who's kind of trouncing through Europe. The young man is kind of oblivious. He's somewhat of a simpleton, right? He's not really kind of more like Forrest Gump, if you think about Forrest Gump, if you've seen that movie, where Forrest is, he's not quite aware of some of the bigger things going around him, but he nevertheless just kind of moves through life and negotiates it and runs into all these kind of experiences. Candide, through his adventures, has interactions with a variety of important authorities, including the church, academia, philosophies, and basically, in the end, it all goes wrong for him. So the irony, right? He's the optimist. He's looking for this way to understand the future, to understand contemporary society, and isn't it so wonderful, and will the future be bright? And in reality, nothing seems to work out quite so well for him. Okay, so there's a third figure that's often associated with the Enlightenment named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but I'm going to talk about him in a different episode on Romanticism. He's a, a very interesting guy in that he supports many things that the Enlightenment is trying to achieve, but at the same time is also very critical of certain aspects of the Enlightenment. And so he belongs a little bit more in that category, and so we'll talk about him another day. Now, so far, what I've been talking about may seem very positive, may seem very quaint. Who isn't for self-emancipation and drinking coffee and going to fancy parties? Right? If this is a revolution, this sounds like one that would really be fun to be a part of. But at the heart of the Enlightenment project is a very tricky problem, a very tricky contradiction. And this is the nature between freedom and authority. Enlightenment thinkers want self-emancipation. They want individuals to have freedom, to have liberty. Who could be against liberty? But if we have absolute liberty, if I can do whatever I want, then do we get to a point where I start to take away the liberty of others? I say, you have freedom of speech, say whatever you want. And then you write an article and you say, wow, that guy who owns the bank is really a bad guy. We don't like him. Well, the banker then says, well, I'm going to hire some people to come over and, and beat you up. Well, now that's not freedom. We can't have that free discussion of ideas and exchange of ideas. If I say, well, guilds are evil and wrong and, and we need to dissolve the guild structure and replace it with kind of a free market, the guild says, well, we're not too happy about that. We're going to come burn down your, your business. We're going to come beat you up. Then you don't have freedom of speech. So some authority is necessary. But where do we draw the line between freedom and authority? I'm giving this talk in the winter of 2021. We're having all these discussions about vaccines and mandates. And one side says, well, people should be able to decide whatever goes into their own bodies. Freedom means being able to decide if you want to get the vax or not. And there should be no consequences if you decide not to get the vax. Another group of people say, actually, your actions will affect me. Even if you just get the virus and you get sick and you go to the hospital, that drives up hospital costs, that takes up hospital beds. I have to pay a cost for your decision. Therefore, the government 
should be able to make mandates and force you to do certain things. So we live with this question about the balance between freedom and authority even today. Now, beyond this kind of conceptual, this kind of abstract philosophical discussion there, there's a more practical element that Enlightenment thinkers wrestle with between this idea of freedom and authority. To make a long story short, basically there are certain structures, certain existing authorities that have a lot of power in early modern society that they would like to break. The Catholic Church, for example, as I mentioned, is an institution with a lot of power, with a lot of influence on education, that Enlightenment thinkers dislike. They would like to dislodge the Catholic Church from education. But where are you going to get the power to pull that off? It's not enough just to say, well, I went to the coffee shop and I ran into Jean-Jacques Rousseau and we have a nice conversation. And, and then, yeah, he said, we really shouldn't have the Catholic Church so involved in education. And I said, you're right. Because then what happens? Nothing. Another example of this is serfdom. Enlightenment thinkers hate the idea of serfdom. If we're talking about emancipating individuals, why do you have to be tied to this land, to this village, to this profession? Shouldn't you be able to do whatever you want? Isn't Adam Smith and the idea of the free market, the invisible hand, isn't that kind of a core example, a representation of the Enlightenment? But how are you going to get rid of serfdom? The nobles are not just going to emancipate their serfs. You can make convincing arguments. It's not enough. So where I'm getting at here is that in order to make these things work, you have to have not just some authority, but you have to use the power of the monarchy to break those older institutions. The king or queen is going to have to be the one that says serfdom is over. Another example that we don't have time to get into, we'll get into this on a separate podcast, is the idea of slavery. Like serfdom, how are you going to get rid of slavery without the power of the monarch to do that? And so where I'm going with this is that Enlightenment thinkers begin to develop a love-hate relationship with monarchy and more specifically with enlightened despots or absolutists. On the one hand, absolutist states tend to practice censorship. The more power you give the monarch, the more he is not going to want to listen or she is not going to want to listen to you criticizing them. To you saying, well, I think the king is screwing up, right? That they don't want that. So there is an attraction to centralizing power in an enlightened monarchy, but also a repulsion to it. I mentioned a second ago, Voltaire and Frederick the Great are very close. They're best buddies. They're pen pals. Voltaire also gets himself kicked out of Prussia. He pisses off Frederick the Great. He pisses off Louis XV. He gets kicked out of France for a while as well. So there is this love-hate relationship going on between Enlightenment thinkers and this idea of centralized authority. Absolutism is one way of putting it. The, the kind of positive model that they like is to call it enlightened despotism. If you get a king that's really on board with the Enlightenment, that likes Enlightenment values and wants to encourage it, then it can be a powerful force for good, and we're going to support it. One last place where we can start to see this attraction of enlightened despotism or absolutism to enlightened thinkers is in the physical environment. If you remember at the start of our course, we talked about how there wasn't much investment in infrastructure. The best roads were the old Roman roads, the, the government, the state government of France, of, of Germany to the extent that it exists. They're not going out there investing in roads. 
and canals and things like that. We talked about how physical barriers between communities ensured isolation. So enlightened despots are going to be the first ones who can marshal enough power and enough authority to start to transform the physical landscape of their countries. They are going to drain marshes. They're going to build roads and bridges. They're going to start standardizing legal practices. And so again, if, if you want to create this revolution and build this enlightened society, you have to have the power to do it. And that power does not exist absent the monarchy yet, absent an enlightened, centralized state. So let me just mention very quickly two examples of enlightened despots that enlightenment thinkers for the most part looked up to. They weren't 100% satisfied with them, but for the most part, they thought that they embodied the ideals of the enlightenment and they contributed towards this revolutionary project. The first guy that comes to mind and, and is usually the one that is most often known uh, is Frederick the Great. He was born in 1712 in Prussia, and he's a very interesting young man. When we think about Prussia, usually we think about this kind of stuffy, militaristic society. We think about toy soldiers and real soldiers and fighting wars, kind of like Sparta, if you will, from the Greek example. But Frederick, who again is born in 1712, grows up as, as something very different. He's fascinated by art and music and philosophy. He just as soon sit around in a salon, talking to people, learning as being a kind of general, as, as being someone on the battlefield and walking around with all the military honors and doing parades and marches and things like that. For this reason, Frederick does not get along well with his father. Um, it's well known that his father used to beat him. And there is some reason to believe that Frederick at least practiced homosexuality. There is a, an example of a friend of his named Hans Hermann Kate, who actually tried to escape to Britain with Frederick in 1730. And basically, the two boys are captured. Frederick is disciplined. He's forced to renounce some of his more artistic activities. And his friend Hans is actually executed. Later on, Frederick gets married, as almost all European princes did. But he wrote to another friend at the time that, quote, there can be neither love nor friendship between us, meaning him and his future wife. They never had any children. And once his father died and he became king, he kind of shipped his wife off to a different palace and banned her from ever coming to court. So Frederick is not the most romantic guys, at least not in the traditional sense, right? He's not very interested in his wife, kind of very much the opposite of someone like Henry VIII, who we've talked about previously. Now, Frederick is also known as being a conqueror, even though he kind of starts off with this more artistic side. He eventually did start to realize the importance of warfare, and he became very good at it. In 1740, he used the opportunity of a, a neighbor in Austria. There was a question about succession, and he used that as an excuse to invade this very wealthy province called Silesia, and they started a massive kind of war in Europe. But he ended up keeping Silesia. Later on, in the 1770s, he uses a crisis in Poland to once again expand the territory of Prussia. And if you want to hear more about this story, you can hear this in our first Patreon episode, A Tale of Two Powers, which basically explores how Prussia went from being a backwater to being a major European power, and how Poland went from being a major European power to one that today we usually think about Poland just getting invaded. Now, once Frederick becomes king, he also starts to implement many of these things that we associate with the Enlightenment. He scales back censorship. He abolishes most forms of judicial torture. 
and he actually starts to try to standardize the judicial system. We want fairness and equality, but above all, rationality in the court system. He promotes religious tolerance, although he is also, at a personal level, very, very much anti-Semitic. He encourages religious refugees to settle and to colonize his lands. One of the advantageous things about Prussian society is that it was a Protestant society. And so as Protestants living in countries like France are repressed, Frederick kind of opens the doors and says, here, please emigrate to Prussia, come to Berlin, especially Huguenots coming from France, come settle here, bring your skills here, bring your wealth here, and you can practice your religion openly and freely. He's also involved in physical transformations. He drains marshes and swamps. He builds canals. He even introduces our old friend, the potato and the turnip to Prussian society. Remember, we talked about in the first episode, this idea of the Columbian exchange and how radically different Ireland was because they got the potato. Well, if you haven't been to the area around Berlin, it's also not the nicest place to be, especially in the fall and the wintertime. It can be a bit cold, can be a bit cloudy. And so the potato becomes this enormously useful economic crop that will feed a growing population. Over the course of his reign, Frederick the Great witnesses the founding of some 1,200 new towns and villages. Now, not surprisingly, he also supports the arts. He brings in men like a guy named Johann Sebastian Bach. And he says, come on in, compose, create, enjoy the benefits of a more free society. Frederick is also interested in philosophy. He has this letter exchange going on with Voltaire, but it's not just personal pen pal, how you doing? I'm doing fine. A lot of it is about philosophical matters. What does it mean to be a good king? How should we address something like serfdom? And so it's very easy to see why Frederick the Great is often held up as being kind of the model, the archetypical, enlightened despot, enlightened king. There are others, however. Uh, a guy that doesn't get talked about enough is Joseph II, who is the emperor of Austria. He is born slightly later in 1741, and his early education focuses on reading prominent Enlightenment thinkers such as David Hume, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and our old friend, the Encyclopedia. Right? So they start publishing the Encyclopedia about 10 years, when he's about 10 years old, but that becomes a resource for someone like Joseph to learn about and understand the world around him. Like Frederick, Joseph also puts together Enlightenment principles such as religious toleration. He reduces the power of the church and guilds. One of his sort of pet issues involves education. Prior to this, education is usually handled by the Catholic Church or in the Protestant countries by the Protestant Church. But Joseph tries to encourage education throughout the realm. He makes German the official and universal language of the state. Now, today, some of us might say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like equality. The Austrian Empire at this time has many different nationalities. They'll grow increasingly larger over time. Why should Czechs have to speak German? But from the Enlightenment perspective, how can I participate in German society if I don't speak German? How do Jews in a place like Prussia participate in Prussian society if they don't speak German? All they speak is Yiddish, which is like a Germanic dialect, or even Hebrew. So one of the things that we see going on with the Enlightenment is you want greater social participation, you want greater interaction, 
but that also requires some standardization. You have to break down those local areas and local boundaries. And that breaking comes at a cost because the more and more you try to standardize things so that everybody can interact with each other, the more and more we lose our own particularity. And so this starts to become a larger issue that will lead us down the course towards romanticism. And that will be the subject of a different podcast. Finally, the last of the three leaders that I will also kind of leave out just for time purposes is Catherine the Great of Russia. We'll have a separate podcast on her and on Peter the Great and on how Russia becomes what it eventually becomes. But she is also someone that is very tied in to the Enlightenment. Even though she's a despot, she's got very strong sort of power base in Russia, she also wants to do things like emancipating the serfs. She actually cares so much about the topics being debated in those salons. She has spies in Paris, not spying on the French government necessarily, but are going to the salons and writing back, this is what we're talking about today. These are the important issues that are being debated. This is the latest in science that we need our people to know about. So I want to end by just pointing out some of these contradictions and flaws in the Enlightenment. As I just mentioned, in the case of Jews living in a place like Prussia, the idea is not real equality. The idea is that you give up your particularity and join the dominant group. You can be Jewish, but only if Judaism means that you dress the same as Germans, that you talk the same as Germans, that you think in many ways and adopt many of the cultures that Germans have. Think about Germany, right? What's one of the most German things of all, it's eating sausages. But if you're Jewish, you're not supposed to eat pork. So how do we resolve that contradiction? How do we create equality in this social conversation without destroying the particularity of individuals? Censorship is another one that they run into problems with, right? You support someone like Frederick the Great, who is all for free expression, except when it comes to him. We don't want people criticizing the monarchy. So how do we balance these two things? How do we draw lines and come to acceptance of them? To put this another way, the Enlightenment wants a society full of uniformity and cohesion, but where does the individual fit into a system of uniformity? The biggest problem with the Enlightenment, however, relates to the nature of power itself. As the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when you have someone who is in a position of authority, like Frederick the Great, like Joseph II, like Catherine the Great, and they're a big supporter of Enlightenment ideals, and they want to talk philosophy with you, and they want to promote merit. They want to promote social conversation. This is great. This works well. We love it. The system is effective. But what happens when the despot is not enlightened? What happens when you get a despot, a political leader, who is not rational, but who acts irrationally? What happens when power and authority are used in an arbitrary way instead of for the furthering the purposes of this enlightened revolution? How do you ensure the continuity of political leadership that, again, embraces and embodies the ideal of the Enlightenment? Absolutism, monarchy, do not award power based on merit. You do not become king in the 18th century because you were really good at leadership because you were an amazing fighter, because you had these brilliant ideas for reforms. So how do we create a political system that rewards merit and rewards rationality 
and moves away from this irrational idea that leadership should be based on birth. This is the core contradiction that will lead us not just to the French Revolution, but that will combust the French Revolution. In the United States, we settled on the idea of democracy. We said, okay, we're going to have these elections and people can stand and the most effective, the most efficient, the most meritorious figure should be able to become the leader. And in fact, we'll put a cap on how long that person can be the leader to ensure that we have a a constant sort of movement that we don't get lethargic to ensure a, a refreshing and a renewal, if you will, of virtue. But in a country that already has a king, that already has a monarch, even in a place like Prussia or Austria, where for time to time that monarch is enlightened, how do you create a political system that continues that? So this is the seeds, if you will, of, of maybe not the French Revolution, but it's, it's the reason that the French Revolution becomes so explosive. It's not just a question of, okay, how do we implement the Enlightenment, but how does Enlightenment and government fit together? There is this collision course that we're heading towards that will then, of course, explode during the French Revolution. And that's the subject of our next podcast, which I really encourage you to listen to. It's probably one of the most important podcasts of the entire story of modern Europe. The French Revolution is the story of how we got to be where we are today, how we transformed into a society that values things like liberty, equality, and fraternity. But it is also a warning about the process of transformation. The French Revolution is not only a sort of dream becoming a reality, but it is also a nightmare. It is also an explosion of violence. And as people think about the process of change and how it should happen and what are the steps and those sorts of larger questions, there is a kind of fear and anxiety about what change will bring. So I hope you'll join us next time as we talk about this very important topic. This is our show for today. As always, uh, we appreciate you listening. If you liked this episode or if you've liked the series so far, please like, share, and subscribe to us on the streaming service of your choice. If you want to know more about some of those smaller details that we talked about, especially about the rise of Prussia and the fall of Poland, about the scientific revolution, you can check out our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. You can find a link to uh, our Patreon site where you can get access to those bonus episodes. In the meantime, again, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Join us next time as we take history off the page.